Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, The Last Best Place or Legends of the Fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. This episode, we have two brilliant novels from Butte. The first is Brave Deeds by David Abrams, whose first novel, Fobbit, was a New York Times notable book and received comparisons to Catch-22. Like Fobbit, Brave Deeds is a novel about the war in Iraq, but this time, Abrams approaches the subject from a much more serious angle, and the results are stunning. We double time across Baghdad on our 12 feet. A mutant-dozen-legged beetle dashing from rock to rock, confident in its shell, but always careful of the soft belly beneath. The second book is a book published in 1971 called Mile High, Mile Deep by Richard K. O'Malley. Many critics consider this book the quintessential Butte novel, and for good reason. It tells the story of a young man who reluctantly goes to work in the mines, like so many Butte young men, thinking he will only do so for a few years, but he finds it incredibly difficult to escape. So I wanted to start, since we're talking about Butte, Aaron, since you wrote the book Literary Butte about the history of literature in Butte, a lot of people have a fairly stereotypical image of what Butte is all about. They don't realize that it has this incredibly rich literary history, starting with Mary McLean, who wrote this incredibly racy novel, about her own life, pretty much autobiographical. Anyway, Literary Butte was a book that you wrote a few years ago about the literature that has come out of Butte, and I wanted you to talk about a little bit about what it is about this place that creates such a rich atmosphere for so many amazing books. Well, that's a great question, and really was sort of the inspiration for writing that book. Um, You know, I was born in Butte, spent a lot of time growing up in Butte, and as I got older, it struck me uh, as somewhat odd that a town that size, you know, I've always known it as 30,000 people maybe, would have so many books written about it, so many novels set in Butte. And I'm pretty convinced that there's no other city of that size in the rest of the country with so many novels, many of them, you know, pretty famous, Red Harvest mile high, mile deep. I think it has to do with the fact that it was a a sort of microcosm of the melting pot metaphor that we think of for the country as a whole. Even though at its peak, it probably only had 100,000 people, it was like a miniature New York City with all kinds of different ethnic neighborhoods and cultures and uh, so many, uh, I think, writers were inspired to tell that story. On top of which, you got the great saga of the Copper Kings, which, right. you know, I'm surprised that hasn't been turned into a blockbuster movie. Yeah, what the heck? That that doesn't make any sense at all. Someday, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you know, the, uh, the city itself, some guy described it as, you know, having been designed by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who that was. <laughs> so, the thing that I 
was thinking about with these two books in particular uh, coming out of Butte was that they're, they provide a pretty interesting sort of example of the history of Montana books because we have so many amazing writers that have written about Montana, even though they left the state. Uh, so Norman McLean, Ivan Doig uh, wrote incredible books about this place, even though they left at a young age and, and didn't come back. And then you also have this other group of people that came into the state and sort of adopted it as, you know, their place and the place they love to write about. So like Thomas McWayne, William Kittredge. Jim Harrison. Jim Harrison, absolutely. So we have these two books that are examples of each of those. Richard O'Malley was a bureau chief in Paris when he wrote Mile High, Mile Deep, but he grew up in Butte. And then David Abrams didn't grow up in Montana, but he moved here when he retired from the army. And he's written this book that's about Iraq, but it has an incredibly strong Montana feel to it. Yeah, I think you're right. And a book like that, to me, really gets to the heart of a question that comes up a lot in literature classes that I teach at University of Providence in the history of literature in general, but Montana specifically, what makes a book, Montana literature. Like, what is Montana literature? Do you have to be from there to be called a Montana writer? Or does the book have to be set there? Or, you know, I I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but I agree with you. The simple fact right. that David Abrams lives in Butte, he's a Butte guy. He wrote this great book. It's a Butte book. I had a chance to sit down with David Abrams at his home in Butte and talk about his latest novel, Brave Deeds. No, I didn't grow up in Montana. I grew up in northwestern Wyoming, i.e. Jackson Hole. But I did live in Montana for about a year and a half uh, just before I joined the Army. I actually joined the Army uh, from the Butte MEPS, Military Entrance uh -huh. Processing Station. So I was living in Montana, and, you know, I think I was living in Livingston, actually. And I can remember going into the Livingston Public Library um, and finding a copy of Richard Ford's Rock Springs uh -huh. collection. Certainly wasn't the first uh, Montana fiction I'd, I'd read in my life, but that book really struck a chord with me. And then from there, I think it kind of led to um, other authors like, of course, McLean and um, um, uh, Kittredge and uh, your books and uh, Ivan Doig as well. Mm -hmm. So I think Ivan Doig's This House of Sky might have been the one that really um, kind of solidified my love for, for right. Montana literature. So how much did that have to do with you ending up here, besides the fact that you're married to someone from Montana? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. My wife grew up in Gardner, so, or lived in Gardner for a while. Um, so you're asking, did the, did the literature bring me back to Montana yeah. necessarily? I'd like to say so, but no, it was, uh, it was purely economical reasons. I moved back here uh, for a job. Um, after I, after I uh, retired from the Army in 2008, um, I got a job with the Bureau of Line Management and uh, here in Butte. And that's what literally brought me back to Montana. But, but all through my 20-year Army career, um, my wife Jean and I had been wanting to get back to Montana. Because like I said, we were living in first Ennis and then Livingston just before I joined the Army. Um, so it was always a dream to come back to, to Big right. Sky. I didn't realize you lived in Ennis. Ennis is a great little town. It's a wonderful town. Yeah. It, was even, it was even smaller then. Um, mm -hmm. this, was, yeah. this would have been back in the mid-'80s. So my my whole goal as a writer, as I was as I was working on this book, was just to get them from one side of the city 
to the other alive from page one to page end, yes. page last. Yes. I just wanted uh, to try to get them to across to survive. And um, I wasn't even sure if, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but I wasn't even sure if they would all make it alive, uh, make it through uh, right. the book alive uh, when I started writing it. So. Yeah. So it was just a question of, uh, focusing on the brotherhood of, of war. Yes, I guess, right. Okay. So I wanted to talk about one of my favorite scenes, and this is actually going to be a little bit of a uh, a giveaway for the story. So if anyone doesn't want to hear a... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> so one of my favorite scenes is uh, the scene with um, James Bond, their sort of mascot dog that they've adopted. Um, and uh, they because they're in a place where they have to keep quiet and the dog can't they can't get him to be quiet they uh they end up shooting the dog yeah. but there's an earlier part in that same chapter where you're building up to that point that you mention these guys they had to kill these two men who were approaching with machetes and it's sort of like a toss-off line you just mention it very briefly and to me it was very profound because we see this, uh, the death of the dog in great detail, and it's, you know, moving. It's it's really sad. And then, <laughs> It was sad for me to write that. I'm I sure mean, it really was, hard yeah. For me to, as and a dog just, lover myself. Right? And then just a few paragraphs before that, there's this brief mention of them killing these two men. And I wondered if that was an intentional sort of statement about how you become uh, sort of desensitized to the human uh condition when you're in that situation yeah i think i think probably uh, for these characters they they have kind of um treated the iraqi people as the other right you know as the as not only the enemy but just almost objects if you will which is really sad to say um and maybe that's what they have to do in order to to get through the day you know mm -hmm. uh, right you know since the theme of this particular episode is butte writers what's it like living in Butte, and do you find it that it, um, it has any impact on your writing? Oh, wow. Um, if we're talking about Butte, the city itself, absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating city. Uh, it's a fascinating town. Uh, as soon as I moved here, I, I, I fell in love with it. I, I will be honest, I, I wasn't in love with Butte before I, before I moved here. I think like a, a lot of uh, people on the interstate, they tend to, you know, skip over Butte on their way between Bozeman and Missoula, or vice versa, um, and they and they just see, you know, the the big, relatively uh, ugly scar of the pit from, mm -hmm. from the interstate, and that's what they think of Butte if they're just tourists. If they, if you're from Montana, then you know Butte has a, a tough reputation. So, Butte people are are tough but tender mm. at the same time, yeah. and so that it's a it's a really complex city um, mm. when we're talking about um, um you know spiritually emotionally and psychologically it's a very complex city and of course that really impacts me as a writer to have these diverse pushes and pulls if you will you know butte has this optimism but yet you know they've been hit with such hard times in the past um that there's this depression going on as well so mm -hmm. it's a balance between depression and optimism the past and the future um, and, you know, trying to live in the present between those two poles. Yeah. One could say that's a good uh, feeding ground for a, a novel about war, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, David. It's really been a pleasure. Russell, it is truly a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. Thanks. Thank you.
Both of these books, one of the things that I really liked about each of them is that uh, even though both of these guys are incredible writers and capable of astounding prose, they are written from the point of view that really keeps the focus on the story. Yeah, I think you're right. And they both have unusual narration, especially the Abrams book is in the first person plural, isn't it? Yes. So the basic story of the Brave Deeds is that these six guys have decided after being told that they're not going to be allowed to attend the memorial service for their fallen leader, they decide to go AWOL and make their way to the memorial service anyway. So they steal a Humvee, take off across Baghdad, and of course the Humvee breaks down almost immediately. So they're stuck on foot and they only have a few hours to get to this thing. But but David writes the book from the we perspective, so everything is from the point of view of this group, not any particular narrator, which is the usual, you know, the way of approaching any kind of novel, but especially war novels, there seems to always be a focal point. That's true. And it worked really well for that book because, um, you know, the the fundamental unit is the, the small platoon of soldiers who have been trained to act and think as a, you know, almost like a family. Um, and that really came out in the book that these guys, they, they love each other. They hate each other. It's very much like a family and they, not all of them support this crazy mission with equal ardor. Yeah. And some of them don't even like the guy that died. (laughs) So (laughs) there's there's some interesting conflict there. So the, we really complicates the psychology of it, you know, which comes out in other books with a single narrator as, you know, internal conflict. But now the internal conflict is sort of externalized. We double time across Baghdad on our 12 feet. A mutant-dozen-legged beetle dashing from rock to rock, confident in its shell, but always careful of the soft belly beneath. We are six men moving single file along the alleys, the edges of roads, and the maze of beige buildings. We keep moving, ducking and dodging and cursing and sprinting. There's a section in the middle of Mile High, Mile Deep that gives us a really strong example of O'Malley's talent as a prose writer, just to give us an idea of how he could have approached this book. The great sword blade of the winter wind honed on the pale northern ice hummocks sliced along the shelf of the continental divide over the somber peaks and into the valleys. Down it went on the ancient warrior visit to the Rockies and the plains, and the forest sank dolefully with its passage. A bear stirred sleepily in a deep cave. A coyote, its rough, high in the seeking wind, whined uneasily and minced along the sheltering trees. Winter. In Butte, where work shoes made clumsy rhythm night and day, men hunched their shoulders and toiled up Main Street to the mines. She's early this year, boy. She's going to be a long one. Get out the old earmuffs. Where the hell did you put that sheepskin? A man could freeze solid out here. Get from the shaft of the dry quick, lad. Pneumonia ain't a thing to shake. You bend down in the heat. Don't stop to cough here. For God's sake, you'll turn into an icicle. In winter, you know, it's 40 below, and in summer you die with the heat. Why the hell I ever come here, I don't know. The wind took a broad cut at Main Street and rushed to the valley floor, and with it came the snow softening the lines of the gallus frames, blanketing the scars that men with shovels made. 
It swirled the snow around the bleak houses in Centerville, Meterville, Walkerville, the flats, and they shook the scuttles and fed the fires. O'Malley was just, he was capable of incredible prose, but instead he chose to tell the story from the point of view of a kid. And um, I love the fact that the first half of the book is it establishes the life that this kid and his friend Frank have in Butte. They're, it immerses us right into their, their lives as Irish kids in Butte. Uh, you know, there's, they go to a wake and a fight breaks out. I mean, everything about it is just setting the table for what comes later when they, uh, in the second half, they, as young men, decide to work in the mines, even though uh, everyone's telling them they shouldn't. And they say, oh, you know, it's just going to be for a couple years. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable the way he presents the story and it's kind of a seamless meld between a memoir and a novel right like it's so obvious that this is largely based on personal experience but he fictionalizes these characters the kids just enough to make it read like you know some of those classics of uh you know childhood literature huckleberry finn a little bit it reminds me of uh where did you go out what did you do nothing Mm. That style that where he punctuates the the main simple simply told narrative with these more purple passages of you know highly crafted prose that's distanced oh, from yeah. the main right. narrative reminded me a lot of Grapes of Wrath where Steinbeck does the same thing every three or four chapters or so it's it's almost like it's told from the point of view of the the city itself becomes a character in the book. Like, it takes on this whole persona of its own. People respond to the city the way, mm -hmm. you know, in other books they respond to uh, mm -hmm. nature or each other. Right. Butte pride, they call it. Yeah, Butte really inspires that sense of identity in the people that live there, for sure. Right. Aaron, isn't somebody about to republish Mile High, Mile Deep? They are. <laughs> Mountain Press is uh, putting out a new edition sometime in the next year, I think. That's fabulous. This book needs to be read by more people. And I hadn't even heard of it until you told me about it. So I'm glad to hear that. Oh, yeah. It's one of the one of my top four books. They both write such excellent dialogue. And they have a really strong feel for the way that men uh, form bonds. You know, they're giving each other a bad time or, you know, especially in the mind scenes, there's these guys that are sort of testing these kids to make sure they know their place. And it's always kind of a, you know, good hearted, but definitely letting them know their place. And the same thing with David's book. Yeah, I, I saw that too. And they're both in an odd way, kind of coming of age novels. But one thing, when we first read these books and we were talking about them mm -hmm. just sort of informally in conversation, one thing that you pointed out that really stuck with me was that they're both have this theme or this motif in there of walking. Right. So in the Butte book, it's the kid, you know, they're walking out of the mine. He gets lost in the mine and he's retracing his steps. So he's trying to find his way out of the maze of the mine. And, you know, in David's book, they're trying to find their way through the maze of Baghdad with no map. You know, they're prevented from calling in to get directions because they're AWOL. <laughs> Yeah. So another thing that was interesting to me about both of these books is that they they explore that sort of youthful invincibility in an interesting way. Both of these stories revolve around 
young men who are stuck in situations that they don't particularly uh, care about, care for, or, or that they may not have even chosen, but they have that sort of invincible air about them. Like they're not the ones that are going to get hurt. Right. And in Butte, that's especially a, a kind of odd inverse or reflection of this fatalism that people in Butte sort of have that, you know, when you're young, you're brash, uh, you know, it makes for a perfect soldier. Um, you think that here, what's the expression? Six, six foot five and bulletproof. Uh, but, you know, obviously the reality is different. And I think the kids in the mile high, mile deep feel the same way about the mine. And, you know, it's a really poignant scene in there where he tells his mother, because she knows what it's all about. And he says, oh, it's, you know, I'm only going to be in there for a yeah. couple of years to earn money to go to college. It's not like I'm going to spend my life down there. Yeah. Right. And she knows, you know, what that really means or could mean. Yeah. And then, of course, with the soldiers, they are obviously much closer to the reality of death. But, you know, they all kind of have to move forward with the idea that it may not be them that has to worry about it. Right. There's a certain kind of uh, that sense of immortality that we kind of all have, like, you know, vaguely in the back of our mind we know yeah someday right. we're going to die but it's not going to be tomorrow i think soldiers have that like a hypertrophied sense of that that after 911 for example so many people wanted to yes to join up or after world war 2 even more you know after pearl harbor you know thousands of young men just gung ho and itching to serve their country i think on some level they all know that yeah. i'm going to make it through you know Whereas I think the more seasoned soldiers, the generals and so forth, yes. they know the reality. Kind of like the the old timers in Butte back in the day, you know, they know what mining was really capable of. And O'Malley, when he wrote the book, was, you know, I don't think he was an old man, but he was certainly a seasoned veteran of life. Yeah. And it's one of those kinds of situations where, you know, it doesn't matter how many people say, give you the kind of warnings that uh, you're not prepared to hear that as a young man. Oh, yeah. It's it's so true. Daylight or dark in rain or shine It don't much matter down in the mines Where the tunnel's deep or the air gets thin That's the way of life for the mining man Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for Breakfast in Montana. We hope you enjoyed this discussion about literature in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And next time, we'll be talking about an early novel from Jim Harrison, A Good Day to Die, as well as a recently published novel, The Widow Nash, by Jim's daughter, Jamie Harrison Potenberg. Please join us. <laughs> <laughs>